0: What the hell? This was published 30 years ago. How can he have the same face? Howdy, Cowboys, how y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Woolong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Steve
1: Cuff. And I'm Colin Tanner, and every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences,
0: and so much more.
1: And Steve, we are returning from our longest episode, yet Ballad of Fallen Angels. I think we've exhausted that topic, even though I could do a whole another show just about that episode. That's because you're a psychopath, Colin. That's true, but this week, We're here to talk about episode six, and you might not realize it, but this is one of the most important moments in the entire show because according to one of the director's commentaries, I can't remember which one, the Japanese team said this was the episode when they finally got it. They said for the first five episodes, they had no idea what Watanabe was going for, but this was the moment it all clicked. Did it work? We're going to find out in a moment. But first, let's talk about Bebop history. This week for Bebop History, we're going to be talking about the character designer, Toshihiro Kawamoto. Now, unfortunately for us, when it comes to learning about Kawamoto's life, our only real source is Wikipedia. And I do mean just Wikipedia, because when I checked the Wikipedia article sources, they just sourced back to Wikipedia. And I hate relying on Wikipedia. Anyway. Kawamoto was born on July 15th, 1963, and was raised in the May Prefecture of Japan. If you're a nature buff, the May Prefecture is a gorgeous area. 65% of it is forest, and there's over 600 miles of coastline. But Kawamoto's early design work began in Northern May, which is a bustling manufacturing industry. Of course, he wasn't designing characters there, but schematics for precision machinery, which makes a lot of sense because he became obsessed with the mecha-based manga and anime of the day. Now, some people maybe. Steve, I like to say giant robots is a pejorative term, but if you've ever seen the collectible build models of, say, Gundam or Macross, you'll recognize that Japan values a high level of complexity and realism in their mecha. So actually going from designing precision machinery to Gundams makes a lot of sense. Steve, you've only seen a limited amount of giant mecha robots, but wouldn't you say they are at least... Going for an element of realism?
0: I don't know about realism because we are talking about giant robots that shoot each other in space, uh, but I think a better way to put it is they're
1: highly detailed. I like that. Kawamoto eventually enrolled in the Tokyo Design Gakuen College, a two-year art school teaching everything from fashion to architecture, manga, and animation. Kawamoto graduated in two years' time, obviously, and by 1986, he began working for Sunrise Animation, doing key animations and in-betweens. Which is just like it sounds, adding a drawing in between two other drawings to make everything look more fluid. Now, not to demean the work that these people do, but they're very simplistic jobs for anyone with artistic talent. The anime industry is more than happy to hire more people, pay them very little, and burn them out in a couple of years. Kawamoto's even mentioned that a lot of the people he entered the industry with are no longer a part of it. But Kawamoto advanced thanks to his glowing skill set. He recalls the director nonchalantly asking him to design some characters, and just like that, he was a character designer. Don't you think that's kind of intense? If your boss is like, Hey you, this thing you never do, you gotta do it. And then every single episode, we're gonna be looking at your work.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a bit overbearing and sounds stressful.
1: Within 10 years, he'd worked on 19 different projects, the majority of which were in the Gundam universe... But he also provided key animation for the movie Memories, which is amazing. Highly recommend it. He was an animation director for the World War II anthology film, The Cockpit, which if you ever rented anything from Urban Vision, you definitely know what I'm talking about. And he directed the animation for the series Golden Boy. All right, Steve, get this. The first episode of Golden Boy includes a scene in which the protagonist is getting so horny for this woman that he drinks toilet water. Hey, we've all been there. Who who among us has not slurped from the toilet when we are horny for ladies? And this lady is like in an office, and she's wearing next to nothing. And he goes for a private toilet, and he just can't get enough of drinking her toilet water. Wow, truly the golden boy of our time. <laughs> Obviously, his next step was joining the Cowboy Bebop project. And let's talk a moment about the influence and rejected designs that he had. Let's start off with Spike. Now, Watanabe said his first vision for Cowboy Bebop was Spike, and then he tried to build everything around it. But Kawamoto actually designed him. He even calls Spike Space Lupon and City Hunter during interviews. Uh, The less you know about City Hunter, the better. But as many have pointed out, Spike actually looks a lot like Yusaka Matsuda from the TV show Tante Monogatare. It ran for 27 episodes between 1979 and 1980, and the character, Sonsaku Kudo, is a detective known for his signature, albeit disheveled suit, and his near-constant smoking of camel cigarettes. So let's take a look at this, Steve. We actually have the drawings right in front of us, which was released in Art book for Cowboy Bebop. Oh, yeah. Spike, in the very first drawing, looks like he has an afro, like a real-deal fluffy, fluffy afro.
0: hmm his hair does look pretty fluffy, especially in this episode that we're about to discuss. But in this picture that you've got here, it's it's fluffier than usual. It's like it's like a it's like a beanbag chair on
1: top of his head. You can see over on the right hand side, we're just looking at this art book. He's wearing the trench coat from *Battle of Fallen Angels*. It looked like that was going to be part of his regular getup. And then look in the left hand corner. He looks like Sephiroth.
0: Yeah, it's it's crazy that that's actually supposed to be a drawing of him because he looks like Vicious from episode 5.
1: I didn't include it, but there were drawings, early drawings of Vicious, and he did not look like that. So this is clearly supposed to be Spike. You know, I'll never have another chance to point this out, uh, but some people say Spike's cigarettes are always crooked as a reference to Dizzy Gillespie, the trumpet player, and the way that he would hold his bell slightly up. I think that's stupid and bullshit and a total lie. I wanted to mention that in the first episode, but I didn't want to be such a negative Nancy. He's got crooked cigarettes. Cigarettes get crooked. That exists. I was
0: going to say, he looks like he just buys soft packs
1: and sits on them. Yeah. And there's already been anime characters with crooked cigarettes, like Jigen from Lupin the Third. Uh, let's go over to Jet now, who basically had the woolly willy treatment. He uh, had all of his hair moved around on his head. It looks like
0: I'm digging this picture of Jet, where he's just got like a cop mustache and a bald head.
1: Yeah, doesn't he look like a cop?
0: Yeah, he looks. He's or like a Russian KGB agent
1: or something. I am Jet Black. <laughs> now you sound like Borat. My Jet, my Ein. <laughs> oh my God. One of the only details that Kawamoto knew about uh, Jet was that he was going to be a chef. So if you look in the corner right, they have him in a little chef's outfit. Aww. And he's got Ein following him while he's holding a skillet. That's adorable. Isn't it? But yes, they basically moved all of his hair around until finally deciding to give him uh, no mustache, but a big bushy beard and more hair on his head. He was going to be completely bald at one point, but luckily they didn't go for that. Now, Faye's design was all over the place. There was a version that looked just like the final incarnation, but she looks like she's
0: 12. Yeah, I like this second picture of her where she looks like she just is in Gem and the Holograms. Doesn't she? Big time 80s
1: hair. The uh, Almost like a Farrah Fawcett, but really long Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, and then this third one, she looks like Ada Wong from the Resident Evil series. Oh, that's a good comparison. It's almost like a pineapple haircut. Yeah. Like a really loose mop top. It just perfectly lands all over her head, and she has big hoop earrings. Now, of course, we'll talk more about Kawamoto's designs as we go on. There's three in particular in future episodes we need to discuss at length. But before we move on, let's talk about Ayn. As we mentioned, head of series composition Kikito Nobomoto insisted a Welsh Corgi be added to the show. But Kawamoto had no idea what they looked like, so a friend of his actually sent him videos and photos. And we can see the drawings right here of a really big-headed Ayn.
0: It's kind of crazy, too, because... If you look at the proportions and just the exaggerated features of all the characters that are in these early designs, there's a stark difference between how they look and how
1: Ein looks. And it's almost like they tried to make him look hyper-realistic for a cartoon dog. He does. Even in these early sketches, he's in color, whereas everyone else is in black and white pencil drawings. Kamamoto actually became so attached to Ein that he eventually adopted his own Welsh Corgi, a girl he named Colin. (laughs) Apparently he didn't know that was a boy's name. It's even spelt like my name. So as the series went on, he gradually changed his initial design to fit the look of his own dog. So keep an eye out for that. Now, following his work on Bebop, Kawamoto left Sunrise to help found Bones, which quickly became a successful animation studio. Kawamoto insisted that they find the right balance between licensed works such as Full Metal Alchemist and My Hero Academy and original works such as Captain Earth, Space Dandy, Wolfrain, and next year's Carol and Tuesday. Though to this day, Kawamoto still says his most proud work is that of Cowboy Bebop, and I gotta agree with them. The more I pay attention to the way the characters are designed, there's a lot of detail, but it's still simple enough that it's easy for the animators.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not familiar with a lot of this work. The only thing I've seen a few episodes of is My Hero Academia. And you like it? No, I don't like that shit. <laughs> really? <laughs> <Yeah>. Ice cold. <laughs> I s Sorry.
1: <laughs> Well, at least we know you're being honest when you say you like Bebop episodes. I do. I really do. Steve, what is the title of today's episode, and when did it air? Well, Colin, the title of this week's
0: episode is Sympathy for the Devil. It aired on Wow Wow, my favorite TV channel of all time, (laughs) on November 28th, 1998, and on Adult Swim, December 16th, 2001. And, of course, on TV Tokyo, it never aired. And uh, for the record, this is the sixth episode, and so far, TV Tokyo has only aired two of the episodes.
1: Oh! Holy shit.
0: Good job, TV Tokyo.
1: <laughs> I don't think we talked enough about this maybe last week, but the idea that something like Battle of Fallen Angels didn't appear on TV Tokyo, how are you ever going to get anyone interested in the series? Yeah, that's mind-blowing to me. So, so far they've seen the dog episode and they've seen the fae episode and that's it. Which is completely bonkers. Yeah, that's not even remotely getting the the attitude of the series down. All right. It's time, once again, Steve, who are the Rolling Stones and what is Sympathy for the Devil? Well, Colin, uh, the Rolling
0: Stones are a British Invasion rock band. I sound like I'm I'm repeating myself, and that's because I am, because this is the second episode that's named after a Rolling Stones song, right? What was the first one? Honky Tonk Women. Ah, thank you. So, um, Sympathy for the Devil is off of, if I'm not mistaken, Beggar's Banquet. I think it's the first track on Beggar's Banquet, which is their 1968 album, and it's got kind of like a samba rhythm to it. And and it's more of a storytelling song, you know, like the, the cadence that Mick Jagger has. It almost reminds me of Bob Dylan in a way. He actually, I looked it up. He, he tried to write just like Bob Dylan. Well, that makes perfect sense then. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, this was kind of a fun song because it was a little bit of a different approach to the Rolling Stones at the time. And also, around then, people were really accusing them of being both devil worshipers and, like, trying to infect the minds of America's youth, because they had a song called, wait, ready for it? Let's spend the night together. Scandalous. Scandalous. So they thought that was a fuck song and not a sleepover song. What do they know? Hey, there's nothing on TV after 9 p.m. What the hell are they doing all night? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so this kind of played into that, and uh, they also had an album that came out around the same time. I want to say it was 67, or maybe it was 69... They put out a lot of records in the short span of time, but it was called Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Uh, so people <laughs> yeah. assumed that, you know, they're worshiping the devil.
1: Okay, but you're a fan of the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah, absolutely. Where would this album and this song place in your general fandom? In general fandom, I'd say Beggar's Banquet is it's probably a top three Rolling Stones
0: album uh, alongside like Let It Bleed and Exile on Main Street. Uh, or Goat's Head Soup if you're a fucking hipster.
1: Now, i not going to be honest, you know, because I like to listen to all the songs that the tiles are based off of, and I really like this one. I'm not a huge mm-hmm. Rolling Stones fan, but I think the difference here between this and Honky Tonk Women is Honky Tonk Women had a loose structure, or no structure really, and I didn't see the benefit in it. I didn't see why it was like that, whereas this has that constant rhythm.
0: Yeah, well, and, and this song too is really interesting just as an artifact from its time, like as a very popular rock song that was played on the radio. It was a huge hit for them, and it's basically like a samba backbeat, you know? And it's all this percussion, and it's very, uh, I, I don't know, it's its like they're telling a story, and there's just this crazy rhythm, and sort of the, the backing vocals are really interesting, and there's a lot of different layers to this song that you don't normally see in popular music, so... Even today, it sounds drastically different,
1: which is really cool. They seem to rely on falsettos for the backup vocals a lot.
0: And for a song that's, I mean, it's about the devil. They mention the Kennedys getting killed, like... Jesus Christ! (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's pretty heavy, and... Yet it has this like party atmosphere, there's like lots of like whooping and hollering and just again like the cool percussive like dance beat behind it, so it's a fun song.
1: Yeah, even as someone who doesn't like the Rolling Stones, I like this song, it's fun. Oh and by the way, of course it was covered by Guns N' Roses. Fuck, I was just
0: about to say. I was gonna make a joke and be like, yeah, Symphony for for the Devil, Uh, it's off of the Spaghetti Incident, my favorite (laughs) album by Guns N' Roses.
1: That's the first one, right? That was not released, and then they released it afterwards. Spaghetti
0: Incident? No, it's just a bunch of fucking
1: covers. Don't forget about Motorhead. And actually, an underrated cover of this is the uh, Jane's Addiction version, which takes a lot of liberties. This episode was directed by Ikiro Sato, who last directed Stray Dog Struts. So we're going to see if we can find any of his directing philosophies brought to this episode. And the writer was Kikito Nobomoto, who, of course, as I mentioned before, is the head of series composition and last wrote Asteroid Blues, which I incorrectly stated was the only episode that she wrote. Clearly that was not true. Well,
0: what a gaffe. No one's ever gonna listen to the show
1: again. Oh, there's more mistakes than that that I recognize. And we'll get to that in a future episode. We should just
0: dedicate an entire episode to us fucking up and just go through all of our fuck ups.
1: I'm pretty sure that's every episode. Mm. Let's talk about the opening scene here because I just wanna mention, we're not in outer space again. We are in a dream sequence.
0: Yeah, it's sort of an interesting way to open the show just because it feels to me like a a continuation, uh, thematically, visually, from episode five, Fallen Angels. Totally agree. Um, and, And it seems to harken back to Spike's past in a way that we're not entirely sure what they're talking about. It just seems like it's from his past. So again, in Fallen Angels, there's all those flashback sequences where we see fragments of what he's gone through with Vicious and his relationships uh, and this feels like it's part of that as well. Although it seems sort of weird cause you're in this lab and there's all kinds of like green goo and stuff floating in vials and Spike is like strapped down on a table and it looks like you should be able to see his dick. But Where's you his can't, dick? He doesn't have a dick, he's got like a Ken doll bump which is crazy, I wanna see Spike's balls. That is so bizarre that they don't have his dick there. Yeah. Hashtag Where's Spike's Dig.
1: Uh, I will say that it's kind of cool that this entire scene is kind of in a dark green, kind of like we saw a yellowish heavenly glow to the previous uh, flashbacks. And also we have that spooky scene where he keeps seeing this eye and there's a fish swimming around it and there's floating brains in jars. And we see the surgeons and they almost look like they're torturing this person who we presume is Spike. Obviously, he has the exact same hair as him. Here's my question. I wanted to ask this last episode, but I didn't ask it because, well, we were going long. Why do we trust everything we're seeing? Why are we just taking that and saying, yes, that's exactly what happened? Like, because I'm just like you. The very first time I saw this series, every scene I saw, I just said, that's exactly what happened. This is the gospel. I don't know. Well, it's hard to say. And I think
0: on one hand, you can say that memories, especially as they're portrayed in film, like they're not always accurate. I mean, even if you think about your own memories and, and how you recall, especially fond things from your past, Often they get distorted in your head, and you remember them as something that you're more happy about than they, maybe they weren't so happy for you. Uh, oh, man, and I remember
1: with, when I was on that gurney no, and well, they were cutting and, my, and my head open.
0: The flip side of that, too, is the nightmarish stuff tends to be exaggerated in your head. So What do you think they're doing? I think they're cutting his head open. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I have no clue. And I'm guessing that it's going to be illuminated in future episodes, but... I think the key here is not only does it link it to the previous episode, but once we get into the meat of this episode, it sort of works as a way to link Spike's own past trauma to the trauma experienced by the villain, in this episode.
1: Spike wakes up inside the bar. He's got his drink right in front of him. Looks like he's having three fingers of whiskey. I don't know. I'm just guessing there. But there's still ice in it, so he couldn't have been asleep for that long. He's dominated by this red hue. Really cool use of color and shadow here, and he's watching a small child on stage play that blues harp, play that harmonica. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but it's just every time I see that kid with the harmonica, I think it's hilarious. I know it's supposed to be serious and solemn, but I just think it looks so funny that a kid would even care about a harmonica. It's kind of like those yodeling kids they got going on on YouTube now. I don't know. Did you notice that in the song that's playing over this... There's a drum, and obviously the kid on stage is alone just playing the harmonica. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that too, which is weird because it kind of fucked with my head because I was like, is this diegetic
0: music or non-diegetic music? I don't know what's going on.
1: I have never heard that term before. What is
0: diegetic? Okay, so if music is diegetic, then we are to assume that it's being heard by the characters in the story. If it's non-diegetic, then it's meant to be heard by the audience, but not the characters in the actual movie or TV show.
1: Is that a term that just applies to music only or everything? Um, I've only heard it applied to music, but I'm sure you could use it in different ways. I mean, for instance, him uh, getting thrown out the window and flashing back might be non-diegetic only to inform the audience and he's not seeing it. Of course, that's not what's happening, but. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I've I've only heard it uh, used in, in terms of, like, music and stuff. A great example is the show Nip Tuck. Do you remember that? No, I don't watch Garbage. Okay, so in the show Nip Tuck they would always play songs that were thematically linked to the episode, but they would actually play them during like the surgeries they were performing. So they would be heard diegetically because the characters would be listening to them. But then later in the episode, a lot of times the song would play over whatever was going on again as sort of a reprise, but that would be non-diegetically because it's not like the characters are actually listening to the song.
1: That's really fascinating and I've never heard that before. Diegetic and non-diegetic. The more you know, we're here to learn, baby. Let's go to our title card sequence, which of course is Sympathy for the Devil, which is the same shade of. Green as his dream sequence. I just think it's a nice touch. Well, we're on the bebop with Faye Valentine opening up the fridge. Almost empty fridge, I should say, because there's one thing in there a sole can of dog food. And there's Ayn just looking at her. Just looking at her like such a good boy. Such a good boy. He has never looked cuter in the entire show, I would say. Except for maybe the time he was handcuffed. Faye picks up the can of dog food, pulls out a fork, and eats it right in front of the dog. It's so mean. I mean, like, his Pavlovian response must be so confused at this moment. But there's something we really need to pay attention to in this section. Faye is talking about how girls need to be pampered because they're delicate and they're refined. And then she immediately just wolfs down... The dog food, you actually hear slurping sounds and she Mm. throws the can on the floor right next to the dog. Over and over and over again, we're given broad ideas about people. We're learning about roles that we impose on ourselves and other people that aren't true. And even the imposers know they're not true but we continue to project them anyway. Keep your eyes open for that. It's going to be all over the place. And it starts with facing. you know, girls are delicate before, you know, eating
0: dog food. I just feel bad for the people on the Bebop because this is episode six where they still haven't
1: made any money or really been able to eat anything. So now last episode, we saw that there were grenades and a handgun inside the fridge. Did they think- probably ate the guns. <laughs>
0: So after this lovely dog food sequence, we finally get into the meat of the episode here, <laughs> and uh, our boys are trying to get some money so they don't have to eat dog food or maybe guns or, you know, whatever it is they've been chomping on. And so we see Spike and Jet, and they're back at this bar, and they're kind of spying on their target, which is this guy named Giraffe, and he's worth $3 woolong. wulong. And so Spike is wearing these magical glasses that we saw back in episode four, the ones that like let you scan someone and like
1: see through their plastic surgery or whatever. Doesn't it just seem far more realistic now that these are just glasses that zoom in on people and maybe have night vision as opposed to just superimposing an old face on people? Yeah. No, they're they're a convenient plot device glasses. They're, they're very useful. Seriously. I just like the way that Spike looks with these glasses. He's so chill with them. By the way, just talking about here, the use of color, Spike woke up, he was drenched in the demonic red, and uh, now the bar has a rustic yellow to it. So this is a very important part of Cowboy Bebop history, and uh, really
0: just popular culture history, because I think this is the first time the word hipster is used to de- define someone, at least that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Chet is talking about how he's a big fan of the blues. He's been a, you know, oh, I love the blues since I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. And Spike calls him a baby hipster. I started wheeling the blues when the doctor whacked my bottom on the day I was born. A baby hipster. Very cool. <laughs> but he's
1: into it. He's like, very yeah, cool. Which this is like, yeah, like 1998?
0: I, I can't remember anybody in the 90s using the term hipster to to describe someone like that. Especially someone that likes the blues. Yeah. Now watch, of course, someone's gonna, like the keyboard warriors, but, <laughs> um, actually in 1992, um, in this film.
1: Oh, you know, it's gonna be like, well, you see, Jack Kerouac originally used the term, you know?
0: <laughs> Perhaps, dear podcaster, if you read On the Road.
1: <laughs> oh, trust me, they're gonna go more obscure than that. They'll be like the Dharma bums. But of course, before they can catch giraffe, Spike notices another bounty hunter and longtime acquaintance of Jets, Fatty River is in the way. Mm. Now, some are saying that Fatty River is a play on the name uh, Muddy Waters, who of course is the famous blues musician. What say you, Steve? Is Fatty Waters... Fatty River. Thank you. Fatty River... Is he Muddy Waters or is that just a quinky name? I don't know. No, this sounds like, you know how you can go online and like there's the Wu-Tang
0: Clan name generator? This sounds like they went online and went to the Blues name generator. Can we
1: just talk for a moment because we were talking about character design earlier. Fatty River looks so fleshed out and that's not a pun. I'm saying like the character looks really well designed the way that he's kind of got uh, almost futuristic overalls, his facial hair that doesn't quite cover up his lip. He's got those tiny sunglasses. The character design is a major step up from the very first few episodes. I think yeah he looks like I don't
0: know he looks like a pro wrestler
1: to me absolutely and then we, we get back on this hipster
0: nonsense too because he's just like I forget exactly what he says, but he's just like, yeah, I've loved blues since I was a sperm in my dad's balls or something like that. And you're like, oh, such a gross line. Also, I I love that this is all going on and like Spike calls out Jed for being a hipster. But like, who is a bigger fucking hipster than Spike? Are you kidding me? Like, oh, my dangling cigarette. I'm kind of angsty, but also I care. (laughs) I got thrown through a church window before it was Mm. cool. My best friend's name is vicious, and he doesn't like me anymore.
1: <laughs> that's like a hipster nickname. they They were probably in a band together, yeah. Just call me vicious now. <laughs> all right. I'm Spike, All right, Kevin. <laughs> I love this scene, though with with Fetty Rivers and Jet because you see that moment where Jet's like, oh, God, not this guy. I don't like this guy. And we see Fatty, when he calls him out, just immediately his first reaction is like, oh, I don't want to deal with him. But then they fake it. They go ahead and say, hey, how's it going? They damn well know that they don't like each other. And they know that the other person doesn't like them either, but they're playing along in this role as friends. Not just to themselves, but to a room full of onlookers. They're the loudest, most joyous people in the whole building. And it's completely fake. We
0: start to learn that something is kind of up here with this young (laughs) harmonica player that we saw on the stage. Uh, He leaves the building at this point and he's like pushing a dude in a wheelchair. And the guy that Spike and Jed have been following around, Giraffe, he sort of follows them out. So we know that they're all
1: sort of connected in in some way. And we should mention, of course, that the reason Spike is calling out Fatty is because he knows he's a bounty hunter and he's probably after Giraffe too. That's the reason Jed is calling him out so that way he can't get the drop on Giraffe. Mm -hmm. So Spike starts following. Following along to a taxi cab. Yeah, the bike starts following the giraffe and trying to duck out of the way.
0: All right, so there's this great bluesy song that's playing during the trailing scene called "Don't Bother None," and it actually has an awesome vocal track by May Yamane in English. But we don't hear it. It's just the, the guitar, just jump, yeah. Jump. And I w- and I was talking to you before we started the show actually, and I was like, okay, tell me if I'm a crazy person or not, but. This sounds like a sort of jazzed-up, slowed-down version of Psycho Killer by The Talking Heads. So, if you're listening to this, uh, give it a listen and see if you hear it too, I guess? Or maybe I'm crazy.
1: It's a cool song, though. Uh, Psycho Killer, regardless, you should listen to it. And I hear it. The boy and the man get inside of a taxi. Giraffe calls her a taxi, and Spike heads off to use the swordfish, too. I love this little bit of unnecessary animation where Spike bumps into a drunk guy that just kind of spins around and goes, Hey! It's just a weird natural moment. They have no reason to put that in there other than that it just makes the universe seem more lived in. So Giraffe kicks down the door to the hotel room, and he points a gun at the man, the boy, and immediately he's just out the window. This is one of my favorite moments of the entire episode because the way they animate uh draft looking really stiff and kind of nervous. We don't know what's going on just yet. I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen this episode so many times I took it for granted, but re-watching it, I'm like, okay, the audience doesn't realize that, This big, tough guy who looks really strong. He's got a a coat. He looks like he he could hold his own in a fight. He's following a small child and someone that appears to be maybe 70 or 80 years old. (laughs) And he's sweating bullets. And he's kicking down the door. And he's checking his corners before pulling a gun on them. I mean, you just watched this. What did you think was going to happen?
0: Yeah, no, I I thought it was a really, really interesting use of editing because I think in a lot of shows, a lot of dumber shows, this would have been the point of the reveal where we learn about our villain and what's going on and yada, yada, yada. But here, we just see this chase and then immediately we see Giraffe fly through a window and it's like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Is the comatose guy like some psycho killer? What's going on with the kid? Did you,
1: were you going for the kid right away? Or did you think that there was something up with the guy in the wheelchair? I thought there was something up with the guy in the wheelchair because he creeped me out. He does have that smile, which we later learn is him almost being relieved. <laughs> but he he's really scary in that moment. Also, by the way, we don't see his eyes. Remember that. We won't see his eyes until we learn who the real bad person is. Here's my issue, though. Giraffe says, give it back now. What the fuck? fuck is he talking about? He should be saying, give him back now. I know they're trying mm. to swerve us a little bit. Yeah. We could have had an entire scenario where we believe that the kid was in danger. And in fact, Spike is going to say, you know, he sent me to save you to the kid, right? Mm-hmm. It's bad translation here. Yeah.
0: And, and that's what I figured. Cause I, I actually rewound this scene because one, I thought I missed something when he flew out the window. I was like, wait, what? And then that line. And I was just like, oh, I think that's just
1: a botched dub thing. You think someone in the room would have noticed though. Anyway, he flies out the window and Spike sees giraffe falling and quickly catches his body just like he did with Ein back in episode two. Hey, same director. What do you know? He catches him right on the swordfish and lands on a building and pleads for giraffe to stay alive just so he can cash in the bounty. Now, this very brief scene, I really love it because it adds a lot of realism to The Swordfish 2. We have those bottom thrusters that just barely prevent the ship from crashing into the ground. And then we get those quick shots of Spike adjusting his hand and his foot to land the Zipcraft right on that rooftop. Now, ironically, now that Bandai Toys is out of the picture, the spaceships are way more interesting because they're of the world rather than the focus.
0: Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny, too, because in this episode and the last episode in the post-Bandai era, it's just like, oh, now all the ship design is is much more interesting to me. You
1: know, I think the reason being is that just like episode two, the ships are part of a world that we recognize instead of the abstraction of space and hyperspace. Now, I have a theory that Bebop is always better when everything's in the background and there's really nothing in the foreground. I'll explain that some other time, though.
0: So at this point, Giraffe is like dying and he warns Spike not to be deceived by his looks and then he hands him this like ring with a pink stone on it, and then he sort of dies. And then the police cruisers shine a spotlight on Spike, and oh, look, another bounty mist. Looks like they're
1: not eating. But at least I got a cool pink mood ring out of it. I, I don't know about you, but I did not I did not expect Draft to die in this episode just because he's designed so well. He doesn't look like anyone we've seen before. He's got a big wide face, has a very unique nose. Uh, there's individual straps on his boots. Like, this seems like he's going to be a main character almost. And they just get rid of him after two minutes of use? All right, so he hands him the ring. Where are you? Are you still buying into it's the guy in the wheelchair? No,
0: at this point, it's starting to seem like, oh, maybe it has something to do with the kid, I think. Uh, but then, you know, they, they go back to the bebop and they scan the ring and they figure, oh, well, it's, at least it's worth money. So of course, Faye gets super excited. And then I love this little back and forth because again, it's a great way, like you have this scene where a guy literally just gets tossed out of a window and dies and you have like a murder child and like a comatose man and all this like fucked up shit. And then we have this great scene where Jet hands Faye a bill. <laughs> You know, I think your heart's made out of lead. Not like me, I'm a nice guy. I have a gift for you. Yay! All right, what is it? An official invoice? An invoice for what? All the expenses you've racked up since you've been on our ship. And thanks for your business.
1: Yeah, great. anytime. That is the best voice acting in the entire episode. It cracks me up the entire time how proud Jet is to hand her that invoice. Also, for no reason, Ein walks across the screen at the end of the scene. He's on the right side of the screen. He walks all the way to the left side of the screen. No reason whatsoever. Because he's adorable. He doesn't need a reason. Uh, and Ein. Lacking any real info, Jet goes and meets with Fatty for dessert at a fancy restaurant. Now call me crazy, okay? I often do. But I could swear, this scene is lifted directly from the very first Jurassic Park movie, a movie I don't actually even really care that much about. But ever since I saw this scene of them outdoors, it looks just like the scene where, I don't even know the name of the actor or the character, but you know, Newman from Seinfeld. He's mean that one guy that wants to give him the embryo container, which is inside the shaving cream. You <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's great. Customs
0: can even check it if they want to. Let me see. Go on. Oh. There's enough coolant inside for 36 hours. No, menthol. The, emb- the
1: embryo. <laughs> and then Newman sprays the shaving cream into his hand, and he wipes it onto the dessert tray full of desserts, including pies. Now, I might be out of my element here, but 1996—that was three years earlier. It's one of the biggest movies, and Jurassic Park was probably on laser disc at this point over in Japan. I don't know. I see it. Even the camera angles, and even jets wearing sunglasses, just like the other guy in the scene. But I do love that little shot of Fatty scooping up the whipped cream with a fork, and we see the indents of the prongs. Super cool. All
0: right, so at this point, Fatty informs Jet that Giraffe was after his former partner. Wait for it. Zebra! Yeah, these guys are named Zebra and Giraffe, which are basically, like, the two animals that get the most fucked up by lions. Like, you might, I bet they have a friend named, like, Wildebeest and another one named, like, Gazelle or something.
1: And now that you mention that, they both look like Metal Gear Solid villains. Also true. And they're named like them. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Anyways, they used to head up this self-defense volunteer squad together. Which-
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. we. What the hell is that?
0: Um, I don't know exactly. Um, So they, they had like a shootout with some space raiders in an R&D facility near Mars and pretty much no one made it out alive. But then Giraffe was found tied up and 10 years later, Zebra suddenly appeared back in society in a wheelchair with this blues harp prodigy kid. So most people just assume that zebra betrayed giraffe, but yeah, I I don't, what the, what the fuck is self-defense volunteer squad? Is that
1: like a militia? Maybe it's the military. So if we see multiple warheads, we'll know it's the military. Oh, good, good throwback. This scene works for me and I'll tell you why, because it's not true. What he's talking about is not true. We know that the kid was involved one way or another. So the fact that we're being told rather than shown works because Spike is looking at the kid again. He's at another blues bar. And yes, they're reusing the animation except for the kids' eyes are open this time, I think. So we're being told false information that will be revealed later and we're being shown who the real culprit is. Later, there's a lot of telling and not much showing. That's where my issues began, but...
0: Yeah, so something about this is all tied to this idea of gate protesting, protesting the gates that they used to jump from planet to planet, which were the focus of, what was
1: it, episode three, I Four. Four. yeah. Oh, you mean on the, you mean the screenshot? Yeah, yeah.
0: So there's a screenshot that says that they were, yeah, oh, part of the gate protest movement. And <laughs> so apparently people didn't want the space gates that allow them to travel from planet to planet. Maybe they
1: were closing one. They want it to stay open. So we're continuing with the theme of ineffective self-deception because the next scene is where Jet and Faye are looking over the old information. Sure. <laughs> Betrayal may come easily to women, but men live by iron codes of honor.
0: you believe that?
1: I'm trying to real hard. And Faye's even like, you don't actually believe that, do you? And Jed immediately goes, yeah, no, not really. And that's just like the start of this episode. Faye was explaining how women are to a dog. <laughs> and she knew that was false. Now Jet's trying to do the same thing to Faye, and in a bit of a hypocritical move, Faye is just calling out, "No, there's no difference between men and women." <laughs> so the the next
0: part is actually my favorite part, just from a very nerdy perspective, and that's where Faye and Jet they start digging through like space news microfiche, what the fuck? to learn more information. About when, uh, only to discover that it's just like, oh my God, this picture of this kid was from 30 years ago. But can we talk about how there's microfiche in the future? And for the space newspaper, we have gates that allow us to jump through
1: hyperspace between planets, but we're still rocking the microfiche? I think it's pretty great. Okay. Now at this point, we've learned the kid has been the exact same size. He's looked exactly the same for 30 years. What's going through your head here? Have you figured it out? Real Benjamin Button sitch. What'd you think? Do you think it was going to be a
0: robot or something? No, I figured it was some Benjamin Button, like, genetic mutation bullshit.
1: Oh, really? Here's the funny thing, though. I actually paused this and read through the entire newspaper. Well, it does say, on the headlines, Blue Singer with Blue's Harp appears, and... The birth of the young genius with the solo blues. The actual articles themselves have nothing to do with the blues or the kid. We're gonna, (laughs) this is gonna get pretty weird. (laughs) Stick with me here.
0: Okay, wait. Quick question Is the kid actually the proto boss baby? Mm, Yes. Okay, just wanted to make sure.
1: He's wearing a suit, isn't
0: he? He's wearing a suit. (laughs) He doesn't age. Is that the plot of Boss Baby? Yeah, Boss Baby doesn't age. He's not a real baby. He's like this fucked up weird thing that like he drinks magic milk and he doesn't age because he drinks the magic milk. What the hell? Yeah, it also has like psychedelic properties and allows him to
1: like transport to baby heaven. Oh no. Yeah. It's a real acid trip of a movie, man. The actual text of the articles appears to be lifted from the UK newspaper, The Times, because I just Googled it. Just typed in everything? We can tell this because both stories are from events taking place in 1996. They reference the United States government's ruling that the internet is free speech, that a mother of two attempted to abandon her children in Central Park, and that the trial of Vincent Chin Gigante, a mobster who attempted to fake mental illness to avoid prison time, is famously telling a psychiatrist that God is my lawyer. And it's listed that two of these stories are cred to the real-life journalist Takuvar Darajan, who also was a professor at Stanford and NYU and whose English articles were only published at The Times during the mid to late 1990s. And I'm pretty sure Sunrise did not get approval for any of this.
0: I just think it's pretty awesome that it was just like, oh, we need some text here. And it's just like, well, do you want to write something? Nah. Do you want to just draw it so like you can't see the text and just kind of make it blurry? Nah. Well, what do you want to do? Copy paste actual articles. How is that the solution?
1: But that's kind of cool though, because we know that this episode was being made in 1996. We actually have a production time. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Spike. He's following Zebra and Wen into an empty warehouse. I think it's kind of weird that we're repeating sequences here. Don't you think? We just saw this five seconds ago. Mm -hmm. They're repeating that because they want you to think that Spike is in danger because we saw what happened to Zebra, right? Yeah. Absolutely. But I think it's so nondescript that it's hard to feel any sort of tension in this scene. I also think it's really weird that
0: after everything that happened in the last episode, that Spike is still going all lone gunman here. (laughs) It seems really weird. It's like, hey, man, remember when you were covered literally head to toe in bandages? How long do you think this episode is from that last one? I mean, it's kind of crazy that he's just like, yeah, time to go after a bounty or time to go after this kid or whatever and I'm just gonna go by myself instead of taking my friends with me.
1: Why would you do that? All he saw was a dead body, it's not a big deal. Oh, by the way, I love it when Wen turns on the light and Spike kind of covers it up and points his gun. Super cool shot. Now, Spike tries to explain to Wen that he's there to save him from Zebra, but Wen reveals his true self, and that's when we finally see Zebra's eyes. So we know that he's innocent, he's actually scared. Now, once again, we have the role of a helpless child where we actually learn that he's a killer. See? It's all superimposing roles. But let's ask the question here, maybe the more important question, why does Spike feel the need to save this child? He hates kids.
0: Yeah, I I think... Spike is more of a softie than he lets on because he kind of hates women too, but like not entirely. He just likes to posture. He likes to pretend that he's cooler and tougher than he actually is. When in reality, he's he's a much nicer guy
1: than he lets on. He did bring Ein back to the bebop. Mm -hmm. Didn't have to. Didn't have to. So you think when he hands him the ring, he's committed to the cause? Because he's not going to make any money off of this. Yeah, I think at that point it makes sense. And also, and this is sort of,
0: Fleshed out a little bit more in in the closing sequences, but um I, I think he feels a personal connection to this kid. You're going for a different angle than I am. Yeah. Again, this is this is all fleshed out. And and I'm only thinking about it now. Like I, I didn't quite understand it when I watched it the first time, but there's there's definitely if you look at the opening sequence of this and like literally the opening scene and the closing scene and how those sort of bookend thematically what's going on in this episode, it makes sense that he would feel a sense of duty to go after this guy, Wen.
1: Well, we're about to hear that scientists were experimenting on Wen, and then they all died. And we see in the opening sequence, scientists are experimenting on spikes. That makes a lot of sense. And he doesn't have a penis. That's terrifying. What's going on there? So we finally see that next scene, you know, where the moon explodes. We hear that a gate has exploded. Wen is playing the harmonica. He's got rosy cheeks. He's not evil yet. Yeah. So the idea
0: here is he can't age because the space gate made the moon explode which turned him into one of the x-men i don't
1: right you know what would have been a really good idea leaving that scene exactly as it was and having when shut the fuck up what is he doing why is he telling this person he met two minutes ago he says who are you and spike's like i'm just a suspicious guy Well, let me tell you, I've been alive forever. (laughs) Here's my
0: life story. I've been alive forever. Also, the moon exploded and turned me into, like, yeah, that's not something you usually tell someone. But if we would have just seen it, it probably would have worked a little bit
1: better. And we wouldn't have to think about the science at all. We just have to go along with it. Mm -hmm. Part of me thinks that maybe Wen does this because he has to keep this secret so often that the moment he knows he's going to kill somebody, he just lets it all hang out because he can never, ever, ever say this to anyone. He just wants to see the reaction. And also, I do like the fact that he mentions the scientist because in any other scenario, him getting caught would be the end of the story. But he's like, no, I'm just avoiding it. I know it'll happen. Everyone will die. I can't die. Why can't he die, by the way? I know he's not getting older, but why can't he die?
0: Yeah, I I didn't understand that part either. Like, especially the way that they describe why he doesn't age. The way they describe it, like, his body creates a chemical that's like serotonin and he doesn't age so he can't die. And it's just like, wait, one, what the fuck does that have to do with serotonin? Two, why Why doesn't he, like, when he gets a
1: bullet to the dome piece, why doesn't that kill him? <laughs> Dude, how much blood is on the ground when he gets shot? I know, seriously. We do learn that Wen was being held captive in the R&D facility, and that's when he killed everyone there, presumably. He's a mass murderer. What's going on with Zebra, though? Do you think he's putting something in his drink that makes him not be able to move? How does this work? Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm not sure how he's got Zebra in this weird, like, catatonic state. Mm. Essentially, where he's completely paralyzed, but he's still alive. I, I don't, I don't understand. And and I, I get that he keeps him around, so it looks like he has an adult taking care of him, even though he's really taking care of the adult.
1: What would be the alternative? He just goes to a foster home. Would that really be worse?
0: Yeah, I, I don't. There's, there's just a lot of questions about. It. I mean, it's kind of weird and fucked up, and it, it makes him this like bizarre puppet master type of character. It actually reminds me of the the Batman villain.
1: Oh, uh, uh, the baby Ven- doll.
0: Uh, was that the Venturica guy?
1: Oh, dude, no. Baby doll looks like a child her oh, entire yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're thinking of Scarface. <laughs> okay. Wow. We got a lot of Batman villains crossing paths here, but <laughs> I think Baby Doll was an original as well in the animated series. I think. There you go. Wait, why does it why does it remind
0: you of Scarface? Just this weird setup of you have this this guy who you think is in the position of power and this child who you think is innocent, but it's like obviously their roles are
1: completely reversed. Hmm. I'm glad that you mentioned that. Because isn't it random that we just have a killer child in this anime? Where could this idea possibly have come from? I have a theory. Cubby Bebop began production in 1996, and we know this episode was also likely produced in 1996 or maybe very early 1997 because of the newspaper. That same year, January 8th, 1996, on Nihon TV, they began airing the anime adaptation of Detective Conan. Conan
0: or it is now thanks to some poison slipped to me by a secret crime organization. Now I've gotta solve crimes as a kid while trying to get my real body back. The clues are many and suspects abound, but I've always believed that with a keen eye for details, one truth will prevail.
1: Which has a protagonist who is a brilliant 16-year-old detective named Shinichi Kudo who stumbles onto a huge case. A conspiracy. Unfortunately, he gets knocked out and is fed a serum intended to kill him, but instead it transforms him into a child. Yeah, child detective. i tell
0: you something. The cases with a hundred million dollars are hidden at the hotel's front desk. How did you know? When you left the hotel, you hopped into a taxi with nothing but your purse. You really are a smart one.
1: Thanks for everything, little detective. Mm -hmm. It's really adorable. So he's forced to play along as a kid named Conan Adagawa while attempting to unsolve the mystery behind his transformation. It's really light and it's super fun and it's really silly and there's always like three dead bodies in every episode. I know that sounds weird, but it really is a fun show. Uh, And it's been running nonstop in Japan for 22 years on TV and 24 years as a manga. It was huge in 1994. So I think this is sort of like a parody. They're looking at the sweet, innocent detective child and like, well, what if he could live forever? (laughs) He was a murderer instead.
0: The other thing that I was thinking of too, and this obviously came out like, fuck, like 10 years after the Cowboy Bebop episode aired but have you ever seen that movie Orphan? No, it's it's about well, there's a titular orphan, obviously, of course, and it's this little girl, and then all these horrible tragedies beset this family that has been adopting her. And uh, this is this is my favorite part of the whole movie. At one point, they're trying to figure out like, oh my god, is it her? Is she doing the murdering? So there's this scene where they hop on a computer and Google children that kill. <laughs> Like there's an actual Google search bar. They type that in and it's hilarious. And then they discover that she's not a child at all. She's just a tiny human. Who's actually a 50 year old Russian woman who likes to kill people.
1: (laughs) Do you think they might have taken it from here? I
0: mean, it doesn't have like, you know, moon serotonin or anything, but uh, yeah, I don't know.
1: I mean, I guess you could also point to child's play, but that's a doll, not a kid, even though it's kid sized and maybe Halloween, the opening scene with the kid, but whatever. I'm going with Detective Conan. You're going with the movie that came out 10 years later. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going with time travel. But it's worth pointing out that this kid straight up shoots Spike in the arm. And when Spike retaliates, he shoots the gun out of his hand. So Spike's still kind of a good guy. He's not a cold hard killer until, of course, he blasts him in the back of the skull. But I still want to say, at the end of the day, how much cooler would this scene be if he didn't tell us anything and we just saw that splatter of blood? and we knew he still escaped. Way more creepy if you ask me. Oh, and of course, when inquires about the ring before he gets shot. So we know that the ring is going to be important. Now, the next scene, of course, we see Zebra is laying next to Ayn. How cute is Ayn in this scene? Um, Always the cutest. Okay. Because here's my question. Why is he there? Why did they take Zebra and put him on the Bebop? Where does he go after the scene? <laughs> Why do they keep bringing people on the ship that are not worth money?
0: They either. I think they eat him. Oh, God. Well, if you think about it, this is the only time we see him. Uh-huh. And something tells me he's not going to be in the next episode, so we can only assume that he's been eaten. Yeah. They didn't make any money. They didn't go grocery shopping. They clearly ate Zebra.
1: This is weird though, right? Like, because you have to imagine that he had to carry him with his arm shot back into the Swordfish 2 and fly him all the way to the Bebop. That's a lot of work. Hey, you said earlier that this is a sequel to um Battle of Fallen Angels. I think this moment right here says that when Spike's getting his arm bandaged up and- uh Oh, yeah, and he apologizes. He apologizes to Jet. Which is nice. That's some good character growth, Spike. And it's good animation because we see
0: Jet look up like, what? Yeah, also, Jet, maybe you should apologize for being a dick and not accompanying your friend on this mission.
1: What? Do you think he even knew? Oh,
0: uh, yeah, maybe, but-
1: How would you describe the Alpha Catch? The device that just reads the brain?
0: Um, it's- Again, convenient plot device brain scanner, similar to convenient plot device goggles. What about the convenient plot device ring scanner? Yeah, that too. All all important. It's just, it reminds me, well, I'm going back to Batman again, but in the original live action Batman show where it's just like, okay, we have a thing and we need to move the plot along, so... Robin, get me the, you know, whatever analyzer that we have, which will magically analyze this thing and help move the plot forward. Like, that's what this is.
1: I will say, though, I was talking about earlier, a lot of showing and not telling. I'll give credit here. For once, Jet is actually doing the stuff in front of us. You remember the very first episode, Spike's knocked unconscious. Jet just rolls up and he's like, eh, the rival gang syndicates. It's all pointless. And then episode two... He's like, oh, he's a 100% mongrel. We don't actually see him look up anything. Episode three, he knows exactly what the poker chip is. Episode four, he knows exactly who the space warriors are. Episode five, we actually see him Googling stuff. And this episode, we see all of the things that he does. Space Googling, it's different. <laughs> space, well, it's zero gravity in there. But this episode, we see him scanning the rings. We see him using the alpha scan. It's just kind of cool to see Jet being resourceful. It makes his character have more of a role on the bebop and it makes him a detective. He used to be a cop. And I think this
0: is, I mean, this is a, a lot of the reason why people like star trek so much is because even though it's you know sci-fi made up bullshit we get to see these people like going through the motions of like actually
1: doing science stuff and come on the alpha catch is kind of cool because it doesn't work all the time he goes this piece of shit and he's hitting it yeah and they just have this like looping like it looks like a shitty
0: vhs tape that they rented from blockbuster of this guy's memories
1: Anyway, the alpha catch might seem far-fetched, but the technology is well on its way. In fact, there's a functioning device in Japan and similar inventions in other countries, but the one in Japan uses an FMRI, which tracks a subject's brain blood flow while they look at pictures of animals in natural environments. Now in the test, they use these scans and they transmit them into an artificial neural network. And the pictures themselves look, well, blurry and junky, but they look a lot like the pictures themselves. Further studies of shapes and letters have also proven that the machine is not guessing. This is actually mind reading. So yeah, the alpha catch, actually kind of realistic. But in 2071, they have full video, which of course allows the bebop to see giraffe explain away how the magic stone works. Why would he do this? <laughs> Why would he do this? Why would j- giraffe runs runs in the room and just goes, this will return time to you. Yeah. Like, are you gonna go fight Cobra next? Hello,
0: evil child. I will now show you the thing which I will use to make you die. What? Okay. <laughs>
1: this is your only weakness. Look at it. This will soon be a future convenient plot device. And then we see the arm shoot him, and everyone, in the Bebop is shocked. Jet is shocked. Faye is shocked. Spike is shocked. Spike, Spike, buddy, buddy, why are you shocked? You were there. You caught his body. Look at your arm. The kid shot you. Yeah, the kid you. also shot you. What? <laughs> He has no
0: reason I mean, to be. I mean, I understand
1: why Zebra is crying. Poor guy. He had to see his friend get blasted. But Spike, you should not really have too much of an emotional reaction to this. We then cut to the rooftop where Way is uh, playing a harmonica, which I think is actually a nice moment because it shows that Way plays a harmonica because he likes it. And if you think about it, it makes sense. He's a kid. He can't drink. I mean, relationships are pretty much out of the question. Yeah, does this kid fuck or what? <laughs> so we then have the scene where jet explains that the ring stone is built from vast amounts of energy merging together from the gate explosion exposure to the energy slowed or even stopped ways aging he's producing vast amounts of melatonin almost like a plant and that almost like a plant bit i had to google that to find out because i'm like what what does that mean so maybe he's a tree person now does that make sense or do you think that that's like no it's all mumbo jumbo bullshit he mentions all this stuff And Spike just goes, yeah,
0: as if. Which caused me to like laugh out loud. Because I was like, why did you say that? (laughs) It's so late 90s. It's it's super weird. That'd be like if... I don't know. If if you said something to me and I was just like, oh, it's the bee's knees, Colin, like it's 1920 or
1: something. Thanks for listening to Wulong Club. Hang ten, everyone. (laughs) Radical. But but think about it for a moment. So far in this episode, Faye is explaining how women work. It's a load of bullshit. Jed explains how men work and how they're different from women. It's a load of bullshit. Enemies act as friends, even though they know it's a lie. So when Jed explains this to Spike and Spike goes, yeah, as if, Jed immediately is like, yeah, I don't understand this either. Spike is the only honest person in this entire episode. Hear me out, he is going through the Taoist mindset or Zen in Buddhism. I fully believe this is where his character is coming from having experienced the last episode. When Jed gives him all this information, Spike isn't doubting that Jed is telling the truth he's doubting his own ability to understand it. And yes, he mistook Wen as a victim, uh, but now he understands he's in the middle of something that he can't understand. So while everyone else is attempting to control a situation with reason, he's letting go, baby. Even Jet is like, hey, here's this bullet, shoot it into the kid, it might cause him to explode. And Spike is like, why, that's cool. That makes it more interesting. He literally is like, why not? This is awesome. And also I love the fact that Spike throws that jacket over his shoulder and he's got his hand in his pocket, he looks so badass. So while everyone else is concerned and trying to impose on what they think is going to happen, he's welcoming the chaos that's already part of the universe.
0: I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's totally reasonable. It's a, it sounds, it's a very plausible thing, I would say. So there's a kind of a funny exchange here before Spike leaves where he's confronted by Faye and she just tells him that he's going to die. <laughs> it's like, cool. Hey, Faye, why don't you go with him? Now, Jet, you going to come? Ayn, you want to grab a gun? Nope. At the very least, Jet lights his fifth cigarette. Yeah, That's going to so, come for something. Which is like, again, this is total like, all I can think of is like a firing line where they light your cigarette before that you get shot. Like,
1: Oh, that's intentional. Why don't you guys just
0: help him out? Nope, they're going to send him out on his own. It's not like that ever ended poorly for him. I don't think they understand why he's even doing this, just like we don't. Yeah, like there's, there's really no reason to do this, except for Spike has his own personal reasons. But yeah, cigarette counter, man. Fifth cigarette. Fifth cigarette, baby. So, you know, Spike trails after the boss baby who like hijacks a taxi.
1: What real quick. How do you know he was going to be there? Is this after a concert? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I never realized that until right now. Yeah. Good use of gaps though, because I never questioned it until right now. Yeah.
0: We just know that Spike knows where he's at for one reason or another. Maybe he used his fun goggles or, you know. But uh, yeah, so the boss baby hijacks a taxi and then Spike goes after him. My favorite part is there's some cool music playing and then Spike shoots him (laughs) from above. Just like lights up this taxi and then he crashes in this. He's in this part of town, too, that is just like. Total post-apocalyptic wasteland. Like, I don't know, have you seen Twin Peaks The Return? Not yet, no. Okay, so there's this, like, weird, like, otherworldly, like, dark zone that exists in the Twin Peaks The Return universe, and there's this, like, creepy gas station there, and and this, that, this reminds me of that gas station. And so he crashes into it, and then literally, like, the biggest explosion <laughs> of the entire series. We've seen, like, star destroyers and giant ships explode. No, no, no. Not like this, when a fucking taxi hits a gas station.
1: Think about the odds of that, because there's nothing but, like, maybe cactuses around there. Mm-hmm. It's the only landmark. Yeah. In, like, 50 miles, and that damn car crashes right into it. Yeah. Also... I gotta say, this
0: looks really cool, but it's also the most anime ass shit I've ever seen. And I'm really I'm glad that I'm going through the series because I haven't watched a lot of anime, but I have played a lot of Japanese RPGs and just like watching the visual tropes and how they're connected. It's
1: literally from Final Fantasy VII. Yes, (laughs) again with the
0: Final Fantasy VII. Sephiroth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Sephiroth is like rising from the flames except it's the boss baby now.
1: I'm sure there's something else that influenced both of these because they must've been made around the
0: same period. I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is like Terminator, but but this is a very old trope. Like I'm sure you could go back and find really old examples of this. is like, oh, explosion, and then he emerges from the flames. But you'll never find a suit as nice as that that does not catch on fire. Also true. The Benjamin Button boss baby murderer
1: should be naked in this scene. (laughs) But as we have established, he don't fuck. And Spite doesn't have a dick. What is the symbolism? Nobody fucks. Maybe he doesn't have a dick just to say that he cannot procreate, which is why he wants to kill the child. (laughs) Now we're getting real deep. (laughs) Um... How cool is it, though, when he's shooting at Spike? Spike is in that Taoist mentality, whatever. He barely even moves to dodge the bullets because, again, he's got to be cool Spike. Bullet literally graces his cheek. He just puts the gun right to his head, points it right at the boy, shoots it at Wen. We actually follow the bullet. By the way, <laughs> didn't it kind of remind you a little bit of Freak on a Leash by Korn? <laughs> now, that was after this.
0: Yeah, sure, sure.
1: But they do the bullet following and just going right in the kid's head in the fire. Also, I love the sound effect that... <laughs> That happens when he gets hit in the head. Oh, yeah. when experiences the horrible pain of aging decades in a matter of seconds. So this is gross
0: because he goes from the boss baby to like a fucking like raisin. He actually looks like one of the zombies from Plants vs. Zombies.
1: Just like... <laughs> oh, God. No, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> do you th- Okay. Do you think that he's feeling like... Because it all happens and then just immediately he's like, oh, crap. And he's on the ground. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's because he's aging really fast or is it because... He's now just, he knows what it feels like to just be 80 or whatever it is, and that's just painful. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, too, is, like, I don't know if we've had a real indication that not
0: only can he not die or not age, but I don't know if he's ever felt, like, pain or something. Like, man, I'm in my fucking 30s. Sometimes I get out of bed and my back hurts. And I don't think he experiences that even when he gets, you know, shot in the head or blown up in a taxi. Like, so he's probably experiencing pain for the first time and also, like... I don't know, getting, like, arthritis and gout and other, like, old people bullshit. Because
1: the magic bullet did it. Literally a magic bullet. Literally
0: a magic bullet, yeah, which is interesting <laughs> and convenient. <laughs> but as as he's, like, aging and, and dying, uh, before he dies, over and over again, he he's just, like, ass if, if Spike understands. Yeah. And this was important for me because I feel like and I could be completely wrong cuz well you've seen the series 10,000 times. But this
1: is all interpretation so it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Now, not seeing the series before and not knowing what's coming next and not knowing a lot about Spike's background. Uh you know, we we open with that experimentation on Spike and clearly he was I don't know, like fucked with by these people who used him for their own bullshit. And we know the kid, I mean, just having the moon explode and make you not age doesn't make you a murderous, like, dickhead. (laughs) Um, He has chosen to be a murderous dickhead uh, through his experiences. But, you know, he talked about how he was routinely, like, captured and experimented on and went through all of this pain and stuff. And I think this is why Spike felt compelled to continue to pursue him, because once he found out who he was and we saw, you know, in Spike's opening scene where we see that he experienced this pain, this experimentation, this whatever was going on with him, that he felt sort of like linked to this kid in a way.
1: Can we merge our ideas together? Because think about this. Spike's not afraid of him. And I'm sure that's kind of new for when. He must freak out everybody. So I think there's almost like a mutual understanding that neither person cares. They're accepting whatever comes to the future. And that's why maybe he says, do you understand? Because he thinks, whoa, okay, maybe you actually have a clue of what's going on. To follow my point again about Taoist mentality, Spike's like, yeah, right, as if. He says, as if again. So I, once again, everyone's trying to control the situation with ideas and rationale. Spike rejects it. He accepts that he does not understand the world around him. And he picks up the harmonica. He blows in it, not producing a sound, which I'm sure someone will know what that means. I don't quite get that. I don't get why he doesn't make a sound. But he picks up the harmonica, throws it in the air. We keep cutting to Spike lifting his hand. So you see the harmonica lifting his hand, the harmonica lifting his hand, the harmonica. we see that it's not a gun in his hand. It's his hand shaped like a gun and just goes bang as we cut to see a space cowboy. One of my favorite endings. Now, I think the reason he does this You know, the the whole harmonica thing is he's relieving stress.
0: I just assumed that he was a fan of uh, former WCW superstar Diamond Dallas
1: Page. And also think about it. So this is 1997. DDP is definitely on the rise in WCW. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we're going to put that in the official canon right there. Official canon. Put it on the Wikipedia page. Now, before we get to our final thoughts, let's go to that Spike cigarette counter. Five cigarettes, only one, which was actually lit by Jet. But now let's turn to Doctor Cuff. Doctor, can you tell us about the Inometer? How would you rank this episode for its Inness? This is a great In episode because we get to see him being cute as hell. Uh, even though
0: Faye's a total dick to him and eats his food, he remains cute as hell. He comforts Zebra in his time of need. On the table. And uh, he's just, you know, generally good for morale. So, what can you possibly give him other than a cent? What's that exactly? Sen? It's a
1: 10. A 10. Oh, good boy. Plus, we got to see him walk along the screen, which I would love to steal that walking animation and just put it as a gif. Now, Steve, you've been digging in the depths of Funimation and Internet Movie Database. Tell us what the viewers thought of this episode. Well, over on Funimation,
0: it got four stars, which is down from four and a half in the last episode. Out of five, we should say. (laughs) Out of five. (laughs) Out of 50, this episode's the pits. And over on IMDb, it's a 7.1, which is down from an 8.3, but it's the third highest rated episode so far, which I don't know if that's good or bad because we've only had six episodes, so that puts it right down the middle. Pretty much. Also, 7.1 is within the range of every IMDb score
1: ever. That's true. But what say you, Steve, what did you think of Sympathy for the devil. Huh,
0: I thought it was more of a six point nine. What? No, I'm I'm kidding. Uh, it's a fun episode. I think it's it fits in the mode of uh, okay. So you mentioned earlier that this was the episode where everybody got it, and I think this is the episode where you get the the visceral violence and the seriousness and the mature themes of like episode one and episode five. But you it also has that kind of fun, playful feeling of episodes two and three. So. For me, that makes total sense. Is this the best episode? Not necessarily, but it makes sense as like, this is a convergence of all the things that we know about Cowboy Bebop so far. It makes perfect sense. And it's it's fun. It's an entertaining episode. It's got a good villain. Uh, love me a boss baby who don't fuck. So why wouldn't I like this?
1: I will say I had a lot of issues with Gateway Shuffle, as you remember, because I thought the third act was really sloppy. I wasn't a huge fan of the monkey missile. But my main concern was that the tone didn't work. The tone just was all over the place. And like you just mentioned, there are scenes where they're joking around about, hey, Faye, you got to pay some bills. Spike, you're going to die. And we're going to a horrifying childhood trauma that gives someone eternal life and near death and then almost Zen Buddhism. But the thing is that it gives enough time for each of those sections to breathe because it can breathe, it has a consistent tone for me. I've just kind of, uh, and also the color palette. I just love the color palette and the backgrounds, even though the animation is a little bit more reserved. And unlike Gateway Shuffle, it's better because it ends stronger than when it starts. I think that's the main difference for me. Now, before we close out, Steve, why didn't this air on TV Tokyo? Um, because they shoot a child in the head? Twice. Twice, yeah. I mean, I feel kind of bad about it, but it's really cool. yeah.
0: I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Also, TV Tokyo's dumb as hell. All right, Colin, well, that about wraps things up for this week. So if you're listening right now, stop what you're doing. Look at your phone. Look at your PC. Look at your MacBook, whatever you're using. And in the description for this podcast, you will see a link. That link goes to our iTunes page. We need you to review our show. It's important. We need a five-star written review from you. When you do that, it makes us more visible. When we're more visible, more people can discover us. When more people discover us, we can do more stuff for you. If this show takes off, think of all the anime that Colin can subject me to before my brain melts out of my ears. Hello, Golden Boy. Mm -hmm. It would be great. So please make sure you rate and review our show if you have not yet make sure you head over to optimismvaccine.com. we've got plenty of other podcasts on all kinds of pop culture topics that you might be interested in in fact i know you'll be interested in them there's some great articles on there all kinds of cool stuff so uh, we recently did a podcast on the career of ernest klein of ready player one and Fanboys Fame and the book Armada. So, he's an author and uh, a piece of giant trash that makes things, but so we basically tear him apart, do some analysis of his films and uh, his his work and what he sort of represents as a as a cultural figure. So, yeah, make sure you check that out. Also, if you want to hit us up on Twitter at OptimismVaccine, you can tweet at us at Wulong Club. If you want to tweet at me specifically and say, um, excuse me, podcaster, but uh your observations on the Gundam mech design were just uh totally wrong. You can tweet at me at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F Colin. Where can
1: people find you, and where can people find more of your work? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. You can find my video game video stuff over at YouTube.com/slash/VideoGamesAreDumb or dumb.com. You can also email the show questions, comments, concerns, Anime Broadcast Club at gmail.com. Please do so. I want to hear from you. For Colin Tanner, I'm
0: Steve Cuff. See you, Space Cowboy. <laughs> They say Janet Gers can't shred, but it's just because they like Adrian Smith. Janet Gers can shred. Uh-huh. It's like John Christ. He can shred, but nobody wants to talk about him. Right. Mike Scacia, Jeff Hanneman, Andreas Kisser. They all shred, but no one talks about how hard they shred. Sure, sure. Acting like they're C.C. DeVille. Can you believe that? Uh-huh. Next episode, Heavy Metal Queen.
1: Gotcha.